0: This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at ten thirty at thirty-eight oh one Johnson Mill Boulevard. I want to read in Luke fifteen with you. You'll see these scriptures there on the chart, but you can also turn in your Bible if you prefer. Luke fifteen. And I want to read at verse eleven through verse thirty-two. Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father... Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friend." But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make Mary and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found." This parable is called by many people, the pearl of all the parables the pearl of all of Jesus' parables. That's that's an interesting statement about this parable. Jesus taught many things in parables. He he taught all kinds of lessons, especially things about the kingdom using parables. The word parable means placing beside, placing beside, remember that definition. Parable is placing beside. Jesus would tell a story, then He would take the characters and events of that story and place them beside other truths that He wanted to teach and illustrate. So maybe a character would represent this, or a detail would have this meaning, and He would place a story beside the real things that He wanted to teach, and He often taught in parables. And you know when you study the Lord's parables you can see that there is a there's a special adaptation to the needs of so many people in these parables. And you can also see when you look at His parables that. That they would have an appeal to different kinds of people depending upon their gender, their occupation, their social standing, their class. They would have a special appeal to certain groups. Some parables appeal to this particular segment maybe, and other parables to another one. And uh, for example, let me illustrate that. Jesus used a lot of parables when when He taught about the Kingdom. And when you look at the different parables about His Kingdom you can see different classes of people uh, would find certain parables more appealing than others. For example, if the Lord wished to give a parable about the kingdom and it might have an appeal to the to the farmers that till those Galilean hills, He might say the kingdom is likened to a man that sowed good seed in his field, and while men slept an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Well, these farmers could especially appreciate that parable. It was in terms of their occupation, wasn't it? If he were giving a parable that might appeal to the fishermen that plied their trade there in the waters of Galilee. He might say the kingdom is likened to a net let down into the sea and gathered of fishes. That would have a great appeal to those fishermen. It was in terms of what, what they did. If he were giving a parable that might appeal to merchant men who traveled the dusty roads of Palestine, he might say the kingdom is likened to a man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one of great price went and sold all that he possessed and bought it. These merchant merchant men would appreciate that parable. If he were making a, a parable that might have an appeal to the housewives in Palestine, he might say, the kingdom is like unto leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. These housewives would have a, a special feeling about that parable. It was in terms of their daily occupation and their toil. But if the Lord would use a parable that would appeal to all of us, regardless of our gender, regardless of our class, our social standing, our income, whatever it be, He might use a parable like this prodigal son. And there is a reason why this parable is so well thought of and loved by so many people. There is a reason why it touches our hearts. It has a sentiment to do with the home. In the story we have a father, a loving father. We have a wayward son and we have a self-righteous son, and we have the uh, inner workings of this story there and the events that happen. But you know there is something appealing about the home. I don't know how your home life was, but most of us as we think about on the home where we grew up, there is a lot of sentiment there, there is some emotion there, there is feelings there, there is memories there that we never forget. And it has a special appeal to us in a whole lot of ways. And that's how this story here is. It has such a great appeal. If there's one sentiment that's common to humanity, it's the sentiment that has to do with home and with family. Let's look at the parable. There are three main characters in this parable, and we have a father and we have two sons. We have an older brother and we have a younger brother. I don't know of anyone who studied the parable that would say that the father in this story does not represent God. I think that's unquestionably true. The Father in this story represents God, our Heavenly Father. I've never heard anyone dispute that. There are probably some that do, but I don't think I've ever run across anybody personally that does. So let's assume then that that's exactly the meaning, that the Father in this story represents our Heavenly Father, God Himself. Now we come to the question, To who, who do the two boys represent? Remember a parable means placing beside and when Jesus uses these two boys, what's He trying to teach us about? Who's He referring to by the two sons? If the Father is God our Father, who are the two boys? And there's been a lot of different ideas about that. Some have suggested that the elder son represents Jesus, and the younger son represents Adam. I do not believe that's right. If, uh, if Jesus Is represented by the elder brother, that's a pretty bad picture of Jesus. First of all, Jesus and Adam weren't sons of God in the same sense. Jesus is the Son of God in an exclusive sense. He is the only begotten Son of His Father. Secondly, if the elder brother represents Jesus, it's going to portray Jesus as being angry because His younger brother returns back to the Father. Is that a good picture of Jesus? Not at all, is it? And so I think we can reject that idea right off. I don't know who came up with the idea that the elder brother is Jesus and the younger son would be Adam. That, that makes no sense whatsoever in, in this parable. And then there has been another suggestion, this one is a little bit more appealing. Some have said, well the elder, elder brother represents the Jews and the younger son represents us Gentiles. And there is a little bit of a, an appeal there because it is true that like the elder brother the Jews during the Law Moses remained at the Father's house, so to speak, while us Gentiles were off in a far country of paganism and idolatry. There's a little bit of appeal there, but I don't think that's what the Lord had in mind. In Luke 15 sometimes we forget there are three parables in this chapter. We just read one. We started at verse 11 and read through 32. But I want to back up to the first verse in this chapter, and it's there on your, on your chart. And you can read with me or turn in your scriptures there, but Luke 15 verse 1 and 2, Luke says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. I want you to look who drew nigh to Jesus when he was here on earth. Then drew near unto him all the publicans, these are the old tax collectors, these are Jews that collected taxes from their own brethren in behalf of Rome. They many times were crooks. They extorted people. They charged fees that were far, and, uh, uh, far beyond what they should have charged. They were just thieves in so many ways. They were, they were regarded as the dregs of society. Then drew near unto Him all the publicans and the sinners. Harlots, prostitutes were attracted to Christ drunkards and thieves and covetous people, all kinds of sinners found Jesus very appealing because they could see in Him mercy and compassion. They saw sincerity. They saw a righteous man. They they loved the authority by which He spake. Jesus had a great appeal to these people. Then drew near unto Him all the publicans and sinners. Can you picture that kind of people drawing nigh to you? What other folks might be saying? What if everybody that was kind of attracted to you was either a drunk or a drug dealer or a drug drug consumer or or a thief or or someone like this? What if that's the only people that, that really thronged around you very much? These are people that just found Jesus very attractive. Then drew near unto Him all the publicans and sinners for to hear Him. And the scribes and Pharisees murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now there's quite a charge, isn't it? What they're really saying, what these scribes and Pharisees are saying to people is if this were a man of God, if Jesus were really from God, he wouldn't run with riffraff like this. He would not associate with this kind of human debris, see. They're self righteous. That's what they are. And they look down on others. And they're better than others in their own mind, and they're very judgmental in that way. And so they're murmuring and they're accusing Jesus of receiving sinners. And eating with people like this. That's the charge against him, see. Now, Jesus gives some parables to answer them. And we forget sometimes the parable of the prodigal son is not just a story about how God will have mercy on a returning sinner. In the parable, we have Jesus dealing with the attitude of of the elder brother and these scribes and Pharisees. And he gives these parables for the benefit of these Pharisees. Remember, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the scribes and Pharisees murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So he's going to start some parables now because of their murmuring against him. Look at verse 3 and let's read through verse 7 here. Notice this first parable. He spake this parable unto them. Notice he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. For I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, More than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now these evil scribes, these evil Pharisees could understand if a man had a hundred sheep, if he lost one little lamb, that he would leave that ninety and nine, that he would go into the wilderness searching for that one that was lost. And that when he found it, he would be happy. It would be a great occasion to rejoice. And we might see him carrying that home on his shoulders. That little helpless lamb that's lost. Carrying that home, happy, so happy that, that this one that was lost has now been restored back with the flock. And we can understand that when he gets home, that's going to be a great occasion to rejoice. Now, why does Jesus tell this parable about the lost sheep? Well, here is Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's finding lost sheep, God's people and restoring them back to the fold. And when He finds these lost sheep, these publicans and sinners, what are the scribes and Pharisees doing? Murmuring, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Unlike, Unlike others, they don't rejoice, you see, when those who are lost are saved. There is no rejoicing in them. Now they would rejoice over a lost sheep if they found it, but they can't rejoice over a lost soul. See Jesus' point? Then He gives another parable, verses 8-10. to 10. Let's notice, notice that parable. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently until she find it? When she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, here's these evil scribes and Pharisees, and they can understand this parable. They understand if a woman had ten coins, coins that maybe bore the image and superscription of Caesar, and if a woman lost one of those coins, she would light a candle, she would sweep her house. She would seek diligently until she found it, and when she found it, it would be a great occasion to rejoice. They can understand that. If they have lost a coin and found it, they would have rejoiced. But now here is Jesus finding lost souls, souls that aren't stamped in the image of Caesar, but in the image of Almighty God. And are they rejoicing? Angels in heaven are. But unlike the angels, these scribes and Pharisees are not rejoicing as Jesus finds these lost souls. They are murmuring and they are saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now do you get a picture of who the two boys represent? In this parable now the Father represents God our Father. The prodigal son represents these these publicans and sinners that are being restored to a right relationship with God. And the elder son represents the scribes and the Pharisees that are murmuring and complaining because Jesus is eating with people like this. The father represents God, the elder brother scribes and Pharisees, and the prodigal son the publicans and sinners that are being saved and restored to God. There's the thrust. Let's look for a little bit at this elder brother. Sometimes we look at the prodigal first, let's look at the elder brother first. And it's a rather ugly picture we get of this man. You know, uh, we read of his younger brother when he, when he wakes up and comes to himself and repents and returns back to the father and the father forgives him, there is a great time of rejoicing going on at the house. And as he comes out of the fields we read that he heard music and, and dancing. He called one of the servants and he asked what those things meant and they said, well, Your brother's come back, and your father's received him safe and sound. He's killed the fatted calf, and they're rejoicing up there at the house. The Bible says of this elder brother, he was angry and would not go in. He wouldn't even go to the father's house. Why? What's he angry about? Angry because his lost brother's come back? Angry because his father's old sad heart is now rejoicing? What's he got to be angry about? You can see there is no love in Him. He has no compassion. He cares not for His brother that's been lost. He doesn't love Him. He is utterly self-righteous. And when you, when you look at His words to His Father, you really begin to get a picture of Him, and it's, a, it's an ugly picture. Look at verses 29 and 30. We read that He wouldn't go in, and His Father had to come out and treat Him, see. In verse 29, he tells his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Down in the bottom right corner on the front of your chart, I put a box down there with verse 29 in it, and there are five times in this verse Just this one verse, this elder brother refers to himself. I put them in red color where they would stand out in the text. Let's read it. He answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Five times. It's either I, me, or my. Five times he refers to himself. He is utterly selfish. He is utterly self-righteous. He can't stand the attention given to this this brother of his, nor does he care that the brother has returned back home. And notice something else about this elder brother. Look how he takes pleasure in reciting the sins of his brother. He says to his father, Father, he has devoured your living with harlots. Now get the thrust of what he's saying. Father, he took your money and spent it on whores. He took your money and bought prostitutes. He loves to bring up the sin of his brother, see. You ever known anybody that way? That when a Christian gets wayward or strays and they come to himself and repent, that that they just take delight in gossiping and talking about their sins? I've seen people that way. They want to talk about what everybody's done wrong. They, they never let it go. They continue to bring up those sins. Now it was none of this elder brother's scent, uh, uh, none of his uh, business in a sense. He says he's wasted your living. He's wasted your substance with harlots. Well, so the boy had done that all right, but he didn't waste the substance of the elder brother he wasted the living of his father and the father had forgiven the boy and the boy had repented of it and yet yeah <clears throat> yet the elder brother still wants to bring it up still wants to bring up the sins and this is one of the reasons why jesus given this parable he's talking a lot to the elder brother I hope none of us today find ourselves like this elder brother when we look ourselves over. God help us when one of us strays away from God, even if we do terrible things, and we come back to God and God forgives us. God help us that we let that sin go and quit bringing it up, and that we be forgiving and don't act like this elder brother. Most of us are flawed human beings you ever thought of it that way now you may think of yourself as a pretty special person you just hadn't done a whole lot wrong and maybe you haven't done a lot of things that other folks have done but every one of us are flawed in one way or another we're all sinners the difference between us and the prodigal today is we've been forgiven and they hadn't but we're all sinners and a lot of the great people in the Bible were sinners have you ever noticed that David was a man after God's own heart. What did David do? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, then had her husband killed and then married her when her husband was dead. And of course Solomon became the son from Bathsheba between her and David. But David commits adultery and murder. How many of you say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not going to read the book of Psalms the guy that wrote that was an adulterer and he was a murderer. I'm not reading that book. David was a man after God's own heart, but David turned from those sins and God forgave him, and God cleaned him up and used him to write the book of Psalms and to rule His people. How about the writings of Paul? What did Paul do? Well, he he murdered Christians. He beat them and compelled them to blaspheme the name of Jesus if He could. He divided the church, tore it up, scattered it everywhere. He was a murderer of Christians, yet He writes Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And we read every one of those books because God cleans up sinners and uses them. And many of you say, well I'm not going to read Paul's writings, he was a murderer, he was a persecutor of Christians. I'm I'm not listening to that man. No, we read his books with great interest and great pleasure and derive great benefit. The Apostle Peter swore, cursed, swore he didn't even know Jesus. As his disciple he forsook Him and fled. And yet we turn to 1 and 2 Peter all the time and read those great words, because God forgave Peter and cleaned him up and used him to write part of these scriptures that we enjoy. I'm telling you there are flawed people throughout the Bible. I'm not condoning sin. I'm telling you that God cleans sinners up and forgives them and God still uses them. Amen. And there's no need for us to high hat them and turn our righteous nose up at them and say, well you know I I haven't done anything like that. No, but we've done enough. God help us then not to find this elder brother in our lives. And Jesus is saying to these scribes and Pharisees in this parable here, look at the elder brother. Look at him because in him and his actions you get a true picture of you and your actions. You are just like this man. Because I'm restoring these publicans and sinners, and you're murmuring and saying that I receive sinners and eat with them, you're not rejoicing. Unlike angels in Heaven, they do not rejoice. Folks let us rejoice when any of us repent and come to the Father. And I think we forget this parable, that that's a big part of the reason why Jesus gave the parable we call the Prodigal Son, to deal with the attitude of the elder brother. And his self righteousness and his unforgiving spirit. Let's be forgiving because God's forgiven us. Now let's look at the prodigal son for a while and, and turn to him for some consideration of his actions. Look at verse 12. We read there that, that this younger son came to his father and asked him for the portion of goods that would fall to him. And the Bible says he divided unto them his living. And some have condemned the father. They've said, well, the father shouldn't have done that. He should not have given this boy his living. He should have made him stay on the place. He should have known that he'd he'd get off in trouble with that if he he gave gave him a little free will here. What we've got to remember is the father in this story represents God, and God doesn't compel His children to serve Him. So He divides to these boys His living. This boy is a free moral agent. And so the father gives him the living and and turns him loose to engage in his own free will. We read there as we go on at verse 13, that not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. Now when he came to his father he was already in that far country in his mind, in his thinking. He would already heard about this place probably. He hears of a far country where if you've got enough money, you can buy women. You can buy prostitutes all day long. You can have a high old time. If you've got money, you can have wine, women, and song. You can have anything to gratify your flesh. Anything your heart desires, you can get in the far country. And he's already there in his thinking, and he's thinking if I could just get the father now, if I can get father to, to give me the things that are coming to me, I'll have the money to go over here and I'll have a high time. He was already thinking that way, and here is my point. When we get in the far country and are thinking, it is not very long till we get there in our living. And that is what He did. The Bible says that He took His journey. I think that word journey is interesting. He took His journey and went into a far country. A person doesn't become a mature Christian overnight. It is a journey it takes time. A person doesn't come exceedingly wicked overnight. That too is a journey. It takes a while, see. Geographically we don't know the country where He went. In this parable the far country represents the land of sin, the land of sin. And a person is never farther from God than when they are in sin. They are in the far country. That is the land of sin. Again in verse 13, we read there that He wasted His substance with riotous living it doesn't say he invested his substance. There wasn't anything in that far country worth investing in. What does the wasted substance tell us? It tells us that when we are away from God we are wasting our substance. Anyone today that is here that is away from God, you are wasting your substance. You are wasting your time in sin. You are wasting your money. You are wasting your influence. In some cases people are wasting their health. They are wasting their eternal future. Sin is waste. He wasted his substance. And that's what people do in sin. There's nothing, nothing in sin to invest in. Then we read there in, in verse 14 that when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Notice that the famine is in that land, the famine's in the far country. He didn't say there was a famine at the Father's house. The famine's in the land of sin, and there's always a famine in sin. The famine represents spiritual drought. Man is, a, man is a, a threefold being we're body, soul, and spirit. There's a fleshly side to us, but there's a spiritual side to us. And we're in sin, we're in the wrong environment because there's nothing in sin to satisfy the deep longings that we have in our soul, this spiritual side. Only God can fill that. We were made for the environment of a righteous relationship with God. That's what man was made for. Do we understand that? We were created to be God's companions. We were created to have a relationship with our Creator. And when you're in sin you're in the wrong environment, you don't have that. Let me illustrate it this way. God made fish for water, and basically He made fowls of the air for the, for the sky, for the air. When you put a fish in the air and a bird underwater, they don't do well. They die because they are out of their environment. When you put a human being in sin, they don't do well. They are out of the environment they were made for. They die spiritually. There is a famine for those things that our souls need to subsist and to thrive. And this boy is experiencing a drought over here in the land of sin. And so we read that there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Now that should have driven him right there back to the Father's house. He should have woke up right then and said, You know what, I've wasted everything that Father gave me. I'm in trouble over here. There's nothing for me, and now there's a drought, and I don't have anything. I'm I'm going back to my Father. But he didn't do that. It's difficult to get out of sin. Sometimes it's difficult to disentangle from the messes of sin and the longer we stay in it, the harder it is to get out of it. And instead of going back home to his father, we read there in verse 15 that he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He tried to lift himself up by his own bootstraps as we call it. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And what does he wind up doing there with that man? Feeding his pigs. Picture a Jewish boy, if you will, the pig being an unclean animal, and he's feeding the pigs of a stranger, and he don't even own the herd. That's the occupation this boy's had. He's, he's wasted his substance now, and he's, he's feeding the pigs of somebody else in a foreign country. You see, This is a picture of the degrading consequences of sin. There are no no promotions in sin, they are all demotions. And the longer we stay in it, the further down the scale we go. The more degraded we become. And now this man is is feeding the pigs of an alien, of a stranger, of a foreigner. Some of you may be wondering, well, why? Why is this guy doing this? Now think about this a minute. Why is the younger son feeding pigs in a foreign country? Let me put it this way. Why do people today choose to feed the devil's pigs instead of being at God's house in the church and being a son or daughter there at the the father's house? Why do they feed the devil's pigs today? They do it for the same reason this prodigal son fed, fed the pigs of a stranger. And Jesus is going to tell us why in just a minute. Why the boy is acting this way? Why he doesn't get up and go home? He'll tell us. But first, look at verse sixteen. We read that he fain would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Nobody had respect for him. You ever noticed how people out in the world, when you run out of money and you're not able to to say buy the drinks and provide the things that they want to do or run with them, they don't have much use for you. You ever notice that? Watch people in the bars, you know, when they run out of the ability to buy a round of drinks, and nobody has any regard for them. When people out in the world get in trouble, who do they turn to? They usually turn to a Christian. They'll turn to the church. What happens when uh, sinners have a loved one who dies? They call somebody like us, don't they? They need help with the funeral service. They need some comfort. They need to talk to somebody. And they don't most of the time call the people that they run with because those people don't have any good advice. They don't know how to handle difficulties. They don't have any compassion or concern most of the time because they're just out having a good time. And when that person runs out of money, well, they don't need them anymore. They're just fair-weather friends. Did you notice here it says, No man, no man helped him. He would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Nobody helped him. I bet you they'd have been there if he had money, don't you? Now they're not there for him. And then in verse 17, we learn why he Now, listen, we learn why this boy and sinners today are in the condition they're in. Look at verse 17. The Bible says, when he came to himself. Jesus said, when he came to himself. What does that tell you? That implies that he's been beside himself, he's not thinking right. He's what I would call morally insane. Morally insane. There's two kinds of insanity. There's a mental insanity and a moral insanity. And we can be mentally insane and not be responsible for it. Lots of people have mental issues. They're not responsible for that. And they need compassion and they need help. But when we're morally insane, we are responsibly insane. And that's what this boy is. There's nothing wrong with him mentally. There's something wrong with him morally. He's not thinking right. That's the problem with people in sin. They're not thinking right. They're morally insane. You see what I'm saying? Let me me illustrate that a little bit. If I had land that was worth a million dollars, and I sold it for a dollar, what would you think of me? You'd say, Pat's cuckoo. This guy's crazy. He's got a million dollar piece of property, and he just sold it for a dollar. Yeah, I'd be out of my mind, wouldn't I? That's what's happened to this boy morally. That's why he's beside himself. He's taken all of the wealth that his father's given him and traded it off for the privilege of feeding another man's pigs, and he doesn't even own the herd. He's taken the privilege of being a son at his father's house and traded that for the occupation of feeding another man's hogs. You see why he's morally insane. He's not thinking right, see? He's traded all that privilege off and spent all of his money, and he's got nothing. And now the famine's hit, and not only does he not have anything, nobody else will help him. Nobody else has respect for him. And Jesus said he would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And then we read in verse 17, When He came to Himself, now listen to me, when sinners come to themselves, they come to God. If you know people that are still in sin, you know what's wrong with them? They haven't come to themselves yet. They're not thinking right. They're not looking down the road at eternity. They're morally insane. When He came to Himself, He said, how many hired servants of My Father's? have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger. And then look at verse 18 and 19 there. And I put them in a separate box underneath the picture up there at the top on the right. He said, I will arise and go to my Father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called my Son. Now look at the words in red that I put in red for you. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sensed against heaven before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. Try to picture this boy now. He's woke woke up. He's different than when he left. When he left his father, he didn't want to feel his restrictions. He didn't want to recognize the rules at the father's house. He didn't like his father's laws. He wanted the freedom to live his own life, see, to live by his own rules, and this is where he wound up now, feeding pigs in a far country with nothing. Now he is heartbroken, and now he's ready to take his broken heart and his broken life and cast himself on the mercy of his Father against whom he sinned. I will arise, he said, and go to my Father. Picture him, if you will. Maybe his old clothing is just tattered up and worn from, from uh not being able to afford any different, and he may wrap that old tattered garment around him and he takes a last long, loathsome look at that herd of swine that he's been feeding. Tears are streaming down cheeks that have been furrowed by a life of sin. He's going home now. He's going back to the Father. We read there that that he he arose and came to his father. Now, let's turn our attention to the Father. We had not looked at Him too much, but when we think of this Father, He's had a vacancy at His table for a long time. He's had an empty chair. This boy's not been there. And I don't know how long this boy's been gone, but it's been longer to this Father than anybody else. You know, a year can seem like a lifetime sometimes, depending on what we're enduring. And I don't know how long he was gone, but it had been a long time to this father. And evidently this father continually looked for him. And we read there in verse 20, that when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. The eyes of God, you see, are far reaching. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I want you to notice something here that maybe you hadn't noticed before but the father ran to meet him he ran now remember the father represents God how many times in the Bible do you read of God being in a hurry God moves slowly don't he? he's long-suffering and about the only time in the Bible I read of God ever moving swiftly like this of running is when he's running to meet a returning sinner then he's in a hurry He saw him afar off, he had compassion, and he ran. He ran to the boy, see. He didn't make the boy come all the way to him, he ran to meet him, see. He ran to meet him, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And I'm told, I'm not a great scholar, I'm told that word kissed is in an imperfect tense, which means repeated action in past time, and literally it means he kissed him again and again and again and again, that he kept on kissing him. And that's the picture we want to get when the father rushes to meet the boy and they fall into each other's arms. He kissed that boy again and again and again and just kept kissing him. And you can imagine that scene when they fell into each other's arms and that that father feels the, the warm tears of repentance on his aged cheek, the tears of repentance flowing from that boy. It's a moving scene when they arrive there together and he just keeps on kissing him. Then the boy starts his confession. You remember his confession? Look there in the text there in verse 18 and 19 below the picture. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now drop down And look at verse 21 to 23 there in the box on the right bottom. The Son said unto the Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy Son. Now he was going to say, Make me as one of your hired servants. Remember? That's verse 19. But the Father didn't let him make that statement. Look up above there. I am no more worthy to be called thy Son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. But down here in verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And before he can say, Make me as one of thy hired servants, the father interrupted him. Verse 22 the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The Father will not let him come back as a hired servant. Let me, let me say this. God doesn't have second-rate children. Amen. He doesn't. And so if we've been off in sin and we come back to God and God forgives us, He's not going to demote us. He's not going to say, "Now look, you're not worthy to do what you once did in my house. This boy is not going to be a hired servant. This boy is going to be his son again. That's the picture we want to get. God's not going to demote us. He didn't demote David. He did not demote Peter. He did not denote Paul, Paul, uh, no, no demotion on him. He will not be a hired servant. So He interrupts, He says, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. What does He mean by that, the best robe? In those days I am told that people of wealth kept a, a robe, a garment they call the best robe. They never wore that robe themselves. But if they were visited by a nobleman, by a prince, by royalty, by a king, then they broke out that best robe and put it on their guest. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And what the father is really saying to the servant is give this boy a royal welcome. Treat him like a king. Now, this is the one that spent his living on prostitutes. When he comes back to the father, he's saying, Here, give him a royal welcome. Treat this boy like a king. Put the best robe on him. Then he said this, folks. Put a ring on his hand. Why? What's that mean? When you study your Bible, you find the ring is a symbol of authority. If you study the life of Joseph, when when Joseph was thrown into prison, when Pharaoh ultimately lifted Joseph out of prison and made him governor of Egypt, Pharaoh gave Joseph his ring. The ring was a sign of authority. If anybody questioned Joseph's right there in Egypt, All he had to do was show Pharaoh's ring. In like manner, if anybody questioned this boy's right at the father's house, all he's got to do is show the ring. Put a ring on his hand. See. Remember the story of Esther. Who's the villain in that story? A man by the name of Haman. Haman got Ahasuerus the king. He got his ring. He was. He got the authority to enact and 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 enforce laws. Ahasuerus the king gave gave Haman the ring. Eventually Mordecai the Jew got the ring, Esther's uncle, and he was able to make laws in that kingdom and influence everything. The ring is a sign of authority. As I said the boy doesn't come back as a hired servant, as a second-rate child. He comes back and takes the place that he had at the father's house. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and then he said, put shoes on his feet, and that implies that he came came home barefooted. In those days, only two kinds of people went barefoot, people that were extremely poor or people that were extremely sad. If you'll study the life of David, you remember when Absalom, his son, stole his kingdom? David actually had to flee out of Jerusalem because his own son, Absalom, stole his kingdom from him. Stole the hearts of the children of Israel. And David actually had to flee out of Jerusalem for his life. The Bible pictures David this way He ascends up the Mount of Olives. The Bible says that his head is covered and his feet are bare. Why is David barefooted? He's the king. His heart's broken. He's in a state of grief and mourning. And what the father is saying here to this boy when he said, Put shoes on his feet, he's saying, The day of poverty is over. The day of mourning is past. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And kill the fatted calf. Let us eat and be merry. And this prodigal son and his reception by this father is a parable a parabolic representation of how God wants to treat every returning sinner that comes to him friends this this boy's lost a lot of things he lost his time in the far country he's lost all of his money he's lost his influence he may have lost a portion of his health but there's one thing he never lost He never lost his father's love. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.